Uh, good morning. It's my great joy and privilege to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Although I do bring an awful message from Romans 11, 7 to 10 on double predestination. So turn to the Word of God. Romans 11, 1 to 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah, how he appears to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bound the knee, the, the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They lacked obtained it by the rest, but the rest were hundred, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Lord, uh, excuse me, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bed their backs forever. That's a word of God. Before I bring the word of God, let's pray and also remember to pray for Pastor Dominic along with our brother Mark Arodi who is preaching at uh, uh, Kiambu Institute of Science and Technology. Lord, we praise your name for your goodness upon us. Thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can learn your will truly as it has been set forth in black and white for us in your word. So we ask, Lord, that your spirit would be present with us that, Lord, you may forgive us of our sins and remove any obstacle that may come to take, a, to take away your word from us so that, Lord, it will not fall to the, uh, the path-like heart where it would be stolen and taken away by the burns of the air. We pray that the seed of your word will not fall in uh, the stony-like heart where the soil is shallow, because then it will soon wither and wilt away without bearing fruit. And that, Lord, your word will not fall down on a thorny ground, but it will fall on a fertile ground. And we ask, Lord, that uh, the saints at, at Buruburu Baptist will receive the uh, 
the implanted word of God through the ministry of Pastor Dominic with meekness and uh, your word will have a place in their hearts for their transformation. Remember too, the students at the Christian Union gathering at uh, Kist, as our brother Mark will be proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Please use your word, O Lord, all over the world today to edify the saints and to save sinners. Use your word, Lord, to glorify your name. Use your word, Lord, to build your kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. There are many benefits of consecutive expository preaching, which is what this church is known for. But it doesn't come without its troubles because today I'm confronted with a, uh, a passage that I would rather not preach. But I must preach it. Um, with fear and trembling, there are people who will go to hell. It's not me saying that they will go to hell. It's God himself saying that they will go to hell. And they'll go to hell not because the gospel was not proclaimed to them, but because they hadn't their hearts. And thus God handed their hearts. We are told of the nation of Israel and from the very beginning of chapter 9 going now to chapter 11 that has been the main theme of this section. What becomes of the nation of Israel? Because looking at them, most of them are not walking in light of the truth that they know or that they knew. And even to this very day, their hearts remain hardened. They rejected Jesus Christ by and large. They rejected the gospel, the good news. They've loved darkness instead of loving the light of the gospel. We are told in verse 7 that Israel failed. And that's an awful statement. That the whole nation failed to obtain what it was seeking. And that question at the beginning of chapter 11, has God rejected his people? And yet the answer is no, God has not rejected his people. His people have rejected God. And yet, that truth is also 
applicable and relevant to us here this morning. It's easy for all of us to pick up our stones and want to cast, to throw them to the nation of Israel. And yet, most of us have similar, if not more privileges, than the nation of Israel. We hear the gospel. We gather with God's people. The truth is set before our eyes. But what do most of you do? You come in with the burden of your sin upon your shoulders and in your heart. You hear the gospel and you say, another time, pastor. Not today. I shall not be saved today. Let's see another day. But you don't know anything about tomorrow. You don't know whether there will be any tomorrow after this. I sit down to interview people for membership. And you know that the main or the primary basis upon which you are admitted into the membership of the church is that you are a Christian. You are saved by grace alone. But then when I sit down with many people, they talk about their own works and their merit. And really, they are not depending on Christ because later on, then when I ask them about, what about Jesus Christ? Why did he come into the world? You didn't mention him at all, and yet he is the Savior. And they fumble around. So there are so many people who try to obtain salvation on the basis of their merit which is exactly what the Jews have been doing. Attempting or trying to be justified, not by the grace of God in his son, but on the merit of their own efforts. And that's what the Bible calls hardening. They, uh, they cannot obtain what they are seeking that way. So the rhetorical question, what then, there in verse 7, is here with us again. What then for you, I ask? What then for an unbelieving sinner who was born in a Christian home? What then for you who have had so many summons? What then? What then for the Israelites who are God's covenant community, who the Bible says, to them belong all these privileges, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving, or rather the receiving of the law. To them belong the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is a Christ who is God over all. All these uh, privileges, all these blessings, what then for them? And so that question, what then, demarcates the last section in this paragraph dealing with the question of the nation or the ethnic Israel. And in this question, there is nothing about the Gentiles. It is purely about the national Israel that is being addressed by Paul in this text. It's the Jews. What becomes of a nation that was so favored by God? You all know how God fought their battles 
and delivered them from many, if not all of their enemies. Yahweh gave them a king. He gave them Christ. He did many millions or, or miracles among them. And here is the implication of the matter of the remnant in Israel who are chosen by grace in the previous section. Has God rejected his people completely? The answer in verse 1 is no. Because Paul, the Benjaminite, Elijah, the 7,000 who have not bound to Baal are all sufficient evidence that God has his elect within the nation of Israel. So God has not rejected his people. Paul has told that in verse 1 through 6. But the fact of this remnant brings to the fore another reality. That there are those who are non-elect within the nation of Israel. There are those who will not be saved within the nation of Israel. And this is what Paul is addressing in the next four verses. And he does this not by citing philosophy or quoting rabbis, he does this by citing from the Old Testament scriptures. From their very scriptures, he says, he presents the evidence to establish the truth. And he doesn't come with two witnesses, he comes with three. And actually, when you look at it closely, he cites from the law, he gets evidence from the prophets and from the writings, the three sections of the Old Testament Bible, or from the Jews' Bible. But you notice then what he says, first of all, that there are only two categories of people before God. They let the remnant saved by grace or chosen by grace and the reprobates. And that's what our age does not want to hear. That word reprobates is regarded as a class word. When you tell anyone that you believe in, pre, uh, in double predestination, meaning that there are two groups of people in the universe, the elect and the reprobates, and that there are two destinies of men, they might as well want to stone you. But that's the truth. There are people here going to heaven and others going to hell. No one goes where he was not destined by God to be. It's as clear as that. So the Roman Catholics will try to quickly um, say, well, there is an alternative. If you didn't commit mortal sin, you can go to purgatory. And if your people love you well enough, they can give their money 
and uh, get the merit of the saints to your account and then you will be purged purgatory and then as soon as the coin hits the coffer their souls will spring from purgatory to paradise they taught and that's what sparked the 16th century reformation because Martin Luther could not stomach that nonsense. Let us draw a table to show these two groups of people, the elect and the reprobates. The word used here to uh, describe the elect is actually the word election. It's in verse 7. The election obtained it. But the rest were hardened. The ESV translates the elect, but really it should be the election. Just like we talk about the circumcision, uh, meaning the people who were circumcised. So the word used there is the election. So the election are sinners who receive what they do not deserve. And the reprobation are the sinners who receive what they do deserve. What do the sinners deserve? The wrath of children. What does every sin deserve? It's a catechism for boys and girls. The wrath and curse of God. That's it. That's what sinners deserve. So, who gets what they deserve? The reprobates. The elect do not get what they deserve. Then, in election, sinners receive mercy. You know, mercy is what has exactly been said earlier, that you do not get what you deserve. But then, in the reprobates get uh, they, they receive justice. So in salvation, we don't talk about justice. So if you lift up your placard saying, my right, then you need to be under that category, that column of reprobation. Because that's where justice is. You sinned, you deserve God's rather than curse. The election Sinners will be in heaven by the will of God. But in reprobation, sinners will be in hell by their own will. So again, those who teach about the will of man, that there is such a thing as free will in sinners, then the will of man will always want to go to hell. That's where every sinner is briskly walking to hell. They don't want to go to paradise. They don't want to go to be with God. And therefore they continue to sin. And so anyone who is saved is not saved by the will of man. That's what we saw in chapter 9 verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Because the will of man is bowed to sin. 
The will of man desires hell. The will of man desires darkness. The will of man is really bowed to love what God hates. So then, under reprobation, sinners are condemned for their sins, but also in reprobation, sinners are condemned for their sins. It never gets to a point where God approves the sinner. So please don't get that wrong. The sinners are condemned for their sins, but sinners are in both cases. Except the condemnation of the sinners in election is in Christ. It's in Christ. Because we are chosen or elect of God in Christ. That's the basis upon which we are chosen for salvation. But then the reprobates are passed over for salvation. Because they, they remain in Adam. Those are the two choices, and there is no alternative. I'm sure you'd want an alternative, but there isn't any. When you come to chapter, uh, back to chapter 11, verse, uh, verse 8, uh, or rather, if you look at verse 7 and 8 together, you will see it's as if there are three categories of people being spoken about. Paul identifies three categories of people within the nation of Israel as follows. He says that there is the Israel as a nation or ethnic people or the Jews. And out of this entity, there are the elect who are chosen of God within the nation of Israel, and then there are the remnant chosen by grace. Then the rest, that is, non-elect within the nation of Israel. So again, let me quickly show you uh, by way of a table with those three columns. You have Israel, that's a world group, where he simply says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. That's category, or that's column one. Then the elect obtained it, but the rest, that's a that category, the rest, or the others were hardened. So we notice that the Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. There was an empty search. It's the entire nation. It sought righteousness by their own merit or works. Israel is pursuing a law of righteousness based on verse 32, but they did not arrive at the law. And the question is why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. This is chapter uh, 9, verse 32. Uh, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 32. There, uh, for God has consigned all to, the, to disobedience that uh, he may have mercy. And then we are told that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's what was said early in chapter 10. Where the Lord said, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. 
This is very important, as I said last, last time I preached uh, two Sundays ago, in building your eschatology. So Israel, that is, as a nation, failed to obtain what it was seeking. Full stop. Then you come to the elect, and there isn't much to be said there because that has already been said in chapter 9 and chapter 10. The Bible says they, they elect obtained it so that God's purpose according to election can stand. That's it. The elect might be in Israel, and in this case we are talking about the elect in Israel, and the Bible says that the elect obtained it. And then we come now to the rest, which is really the focus of his sum. The Bible says the rest were hardened. God gave them, and this is, these are all the characteristics listed here. God gave, gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear. Their table became a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Their eyes darkened so that they cannot see and bed their backs forever. So clearly, at that place, the Bible teaches this double predestination. The Bible is clear that there are only two destinies, whether it's among, from among the Gentiles or from among the Jews. Two destinies of men. Paul quotes from the world of the Old Testament corpus represented by the law and the prophets and the writings. Verse 8 merges Deuteronomy 29 verse 4 and Isaiah 29 verse 10 together. So the law there in Deuteronomy 29 verse 4 says, But to this day the Lord has not given you, Jews, a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. He's not given you that. From the prophets, we read from Isaiah 29 verse 10, For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, a spirit of stupor, and has closed your eyes. Who are your eyes? The prophets. And covered your hands. Who, what's your hands? The seers. So the prophets have been withdrawn, and the seers are not there. And then from the writings, he quotes uh, Psalm 69, verse 22, which is an imprecation. It's curses upon curses. And he says, let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let them become a trap. So Israel, Israel nation's failure has been documented throughout the, the pages of the scriptures. And it's demonstrated by their own character. And it shows the Israel's part. But it also shows that the Lord, Yahweh, did not give them a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear according to Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. So then you ask, is God the author of sin? Has he abandoned his covenant with them? Is he saying that the Lord did not just do anything for them? Is it to say that God did nothing with them? 
No. The Bible says that Yahweh has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, deep slumber. The covenant God closed their eyes, that is their prophets, and covered their hands, that is their seers, within them. Therefore their table became a snare and a trap. In other words, what was supposed to be their blessing became their bane because their curse was that they sustained their unfaithfulness and rebellion. So Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not obtain that law. Chapter 9 verse 31. There is no right, and, uh, right standing with God through merits and by a sinner's effort. There is no right standing with God through merits and by a sinner's effort, whether a sinner is a Jew or a Gentile. Is effort earn God's justice? And God's justice is hell. The Jewish piety was deficient in attaining or obtaining the righteousness of God. And as such, those who sought to earn this righteousness failed. Again, the question, is God the author of sin, need to be answered. And I think what we need to do then is look at that group of reprobates and look at various scriptures to see how this reprobation comes about. And a very uh, relevant question to ask is, when did the election take place? Or how did it take place? Did God elect in view of the fall of man? Or did God, knowing that there will be fall into sin, elect? What happened? What was the order? When you look at uh, reprobation, a sinner rejects the gospel to the point where God in turn rejects them and curses their consciences so that they are, their consciences are seared. And you see this in Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 30 where we read, Rejected silver they are called for the Lord has rejected them. But it's further clarified in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23 to 31. This is a longer text. Listen to this. God says, If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called you and you, re you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and you would, not, would have none of my reproof. I also will love at your calamity 
I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Can you imagine that? God laughing, mocking you, when calamity comes like a whirlwind upon you, when distress and anguish comes upon you. Can you imagine that? Then they will call upon me, the Bible says, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but I will not be found. They will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. First of all, we need to acknowledge that there are some bait about this truth that we cannot fully comprehend. But there are things that are clear in scripture that one, God is not the author or approver of sin. He said, the Bible says that he is of purer eyes that he cannot behold evil. That's one. Two, we know that God is gracious and kind. God is merciful and gracious. This is his character. He's slow to act and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so then, when we look at the matter of reprobation, we must put it all squarely on the feet of man. This is where then human responsibility comes in in its clearest term. God does not strike without a warning. He will give sufficient warnings. That's what we've just read in Proverbs 1. He invites and invites and invites. And you see that with the nation of Israel. They are made by God as a nation. God brings them into a covenant with them in Mount Sinai. And he has one, uh, he, he did wonderful things, miracles of deliverance throughout. But what do we see? Murmuring, complaining. We don't want this. We would prefer garlic in, Israel, in, in Egypt. We would want melons. We would want, I mean, you're wondering, you have all these quails and what you would want rather is onions and garlic? And they carry on. God gives them the Ten Commandments. No, they don't want that. They would prefer the golden calf. God gives them Moses, his own prophet. No, they don't want Moses. What, what, they would prefer Korah and Dathan. They would prefer rebellious men. And so God leaves them to their own devices. God lets them eat the fruit of their way. God abandons them in what they want. 
God gives grace to some, not all. And so when you're given grace, you need to be very, very thankful. Because if you're left to your own devices, you would self-destroy yourself. Because your heart is already hunted enough against God. When you're so hardened as to feel no remorse or misgiving of conscience for particularly vile acts, this is a reprobation. Because you know that the wrath of God comes now and it will come later. In Romans 1 verse 18, the Bible talks about the wrath of God now. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their wickedness, in their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And the Bible goes on to say, so God gave them up to their debased minds. So God gave them up to their hardened hearts. The conscience becomes seared. Therefore, the Lord can bypass a person, and when any sinner is left by God to his own devices, it is catastrophic. Someone asked me today in the Sunday school class, who hardens whose heart? And I quickly pulled out the example of Pharaoh, who was spoken about in chapter 9. Did God harden the heart of Pharaoh or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yes? You go to Exodus 7 and you will see it as clear as... And by the way, you can go through the world book of Exodus and see that. But let us especially be look at uh, Pharaoh, chapter 7. Verse 3, God says to, to Moses, shall speak to Pharaoh. And in verse 3 he says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Look at verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hunted. He refuses to let my pe the people go. Verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he did not take even this to heart. He would not listen to them. Chapter 8, verse 15. And when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 32, But Pharaoh hunted his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. Chapter 9, verse 7, But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. I can go on and on. Goes into chapter 10, and through all the plagues. And you will see these two things. 
One, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And two, God handed the heart of Pharaoh. The two are together. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are ever together like that. They never fight. When you harden your heart, then God will make you harden your heart. It's that simple. And why did, you may ask, and why did God harden the hearts of Pharaoh? Because he also doesn't make excuses. God doesn't simply say, well, Pharaoh just hardened his heart. He also does admit that there was his divine hand of sovereignty in the world matter. So the question is why? Verse 17 of Romans 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The Lord can bypass a person and leave a person to his own hardening of heart. But God raised Pharaoh to display this, his power in him so that his name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. And so when Pharaoh hardened his heart in wickedness, the Lord also hardened it all the more so that he would not receive the word of God with meekness. We need to be so careful that we do not receive the word of God with arrogance and pride and say, I don't want that. God can easily abandon you to your folly. And what would become of you? If you look at that word, hardened, in verse 7, you notice that it is in the passive voice. It suggests that they were hardened by God. And of course, there is the scriptural support from Deuteronomy and Isaiah that show that God does actually harden some people. But you need to point out that it's not against their will. People's hearts are not hardened against their will. It's not like they are saying, I will believe in Jesus. And God says, no, you will not believe in Jesus. You'll go to hell. It's not like that. It's that the person does not want to believe in Jesus for their salvation. And so God says, okay, you will not believe in Jesus, then you'll go to hell. This is a way to understand the rebellion and the resistance of the Jews against the word of God. The Israelites during the exodus from Egypt were so rebellious and hardened despite God's constant coming to them in grace and mercy and pleading with them. And so the Lord did say that the Lord had been pleading with them. Even Jerusalem, when the Lord wept for them, said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I I brought I brought you like 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 uh, chicks, but no, you wanted to go your own way, and I let you go your way. 
They resist. But why do they resist, you would ask? It can be said because they lack the necessary spiritual faculty which is only given by God. Faith is a gift from God, lest any man should boast. And when God doesn't give you faith by his spirit, then he, give you a, he gives you a spirit of deep sleep, a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that, that would not hear. See how Paul buttresses this truth here in Psalm, from Psalm 69, where David called upon the Lord to punish those who persecuted him. And it's not exactly clear the function of this quote, but it clearly shows that the very psalms that they sung bore the threat to those who wanted to be God's enemies. For in their rebellion, Israel has become the enemy of God. Their table simply means a place to rest, to enjoy, to dine, which has now turned into a place for rebellion and thus a place for a curse. God will turn the tables, literally, so that when they would have dined and fellowshiped with him and with one another, this will be where they are caught in their schemes of evil and are punished for their sins. They are in that trap and that snare. So I repeat again that God is not the author or approver of sin. God has given enough resources, enough information for everyone to believe and to be saved through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if anyone is not saved, when you are finally in your destiny in hell, you will not be able to blame God that He did not choose you, He did not elect you for salvation. Because you would see the wickedness of your own devices. So then in uh, Luke chapter 16, we are told of two men. The rich man and Lazarus. The, the rich man spent his time in reverie and enjoying himself, enjoying his wealth. And the Bible says that he died and was buried. Then Lazarus, the Bible says he was a poor man, sick man. He could not even afford food, so he ate uh, the crumbs at the rich man's table. And his dogs were licking him of his wounds. And then the Bible says that he also died. And the Bible says that he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. But I'm more interested in the rich man because as soon as he died, all his wealth obviously was gone. He could not have found a drop of water on his tongue. And he was pleading. And he was yelling in pain. Because there was much pain from the intensity 
of the fire of hell. It's unquenchable fire where the worm does not die, as the Lord said in Mark 9. And while he is there, in the torments of hell, he called out because he could see that across the chasm that existed, there was Abraham and there was Lazarus. And he, call out, he called out and he said, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus over to me with some water so that I can quench my tongue. And there is no cursing. There is no more wickedness. There is no more lies at that point in hell. And he's not bitter with God. And he's, he's told, we would love to do that, but there is a big problem. A cousin be exists between us so that out of our mercy and pity and sympathy for you, we cannot cross over. And out of your anguish, you cannot cross over. So there can't be any interaction between us. And you would think that he would curse and blaspheme. No, he did not. He tried to look for other ways. And when that did not work, he thought about his own five brothers back on earth who are not dead, who are still living. And it is at that point he appreciated the value of the gospel. And he said, if you can't send Lazarus to me, then please send him over to my five brothers on earth so that they may hear the gospel from a resurrected man. And that would not also work. Because you know there had been a resurrected Lazarus. Did people believe the gospel out of Lazarus who had been, who had resurrected? No. They did not. In fact, they were saying, no, really, he didn't, he didn't die. We don't believe that. And so that's what Abraham told this man. They have Moses and they have the prophets. They have the scriptures. If they wanted to be saved, it's possible for them to be saved. If they wanted to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel is with them. There are preachers there. They should listen to them. No Lazarus need to be sent to them. But he appreciated the value of the gospel in hell. And so reprobates who are already in hell know the doctrine that we are talking about right now too well. And they know that they have themselves to blame, not God. And they know that God gave them all that they needed to believe, but they refused. They followed their own ways and they are punished for their own sins and their wickedness and their unrighteousness. That. Mr. Dives knew that. 
But when we are on this side of eternity, we can afford to argue and try to figure out exactly how God passed some over and not save everyone. That is God's prerogative. The Lord in his sovereignty knows what he is doing. And he calls upon you to believe in his son. And when you believe in his son, then you would be sure that you are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Because you can know. And the Bible says, we can know whether you have been elect of God or not. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 1. Verse 4. And we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. We, Silvanus and Timothy and Paul, know that you, Thessalonians, have been loved by God and that he has chosen you. How do we know? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And we know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, that you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. We know when we look at you and the lives that you live, based on your faith, that is a sure proof, according to this text, that you've been chosen by God. And so don't write yourself off and say, well, I think I'm going to hell. Don't say that. As long as the gospel is coming to you, you believe you're saved. You believe and we know that you are among the elect of God. So I have four things to say in application and then I'll call it a day. One, believe Christ. When you hear the gospel, do not harden your heart in rebellion. The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Do not leave this hall thinking that you will have another time to hear the gospel. When you hear the gospel, receive it with meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your soul. If you believe, then you're saved. So I urge you today, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't live here without Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust yourself to him. Trust in his merit. Depend on his mercy for the forgiveness of your sins. Call upon his name and you will be saved. Do this without any more delay because he is willing and he is able to save you. Now, now, two, fear God. God is to be feared. We must never forget that this is the one who is able to kill your body and cast your soul to hell. That's what the Lord said. Don't fear man, fear God. 
Man can only kill the body which will die anyway. But God can kill your body and cast your soul to hell. You must never forget that God is everywhere and he knows everything about you. A Christian life is living in the presence of God. Always think as if you're thinking with God. Always talk or speak as if you're talking to God. Respond as if you're responding to God. Fear God in all your ways all the time. Three, rejoice in the Lord. There is no doubt God has richly blessed us with great and wonderful blessings in salvation. We need to be full of joy, unspeakable. We need to live as those who are truly blessed because we are. We are to count it all joy even when we fall into trials of various kinds. We are to rejoice in the Lord always and again to rejoice because we know what God has done for us. So the joy of the Lord should always be and must always be our strength. And, and lastly, please evangelize. We've been entrusted with the gospel, the good news of our Savior. We've been given the light and have been made the light of the world. Let us shine our light to the world by telling the sinners around us, whether young or old, whether our children or our relatives. Let us tell them every day to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. We need to share the gospel with our neighbors and our colleagues at work, our friends, our relatives, everyone. Don't keep quiet. Don't keep quiet. Let them know that he is willing and is able to save. Because God has placed you where he has placed you with the people that you interact with and the way you interact with them, whether they are your bosses or your colleagues at work, your peers or your juniors, whether it's your children or your spouses, whether it's your uncles or your aunties or your nieces or nephews, God has given you something with them that you can exploit by letting them know that Jesus Christ has saved you and he is willing to save them as well. I want you to go and do this, make this observation. You'll find out this. And this is especially directed at you young people. Most of the people are saved between, before they are 20. Most of the people are saved before they are 20 years old. Between 20 and 40, there is more resistance. By the time they are above 40, they are more set on their ways. So parents, hammer the gospel to your children. And children, when you hear the gospel, believe the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be a joy to put you in the pool here and baptize you. I see you coming here every time there is a baptism and you want to see how it's going to work. Let you be the one to be baptized.
This is the time to believe, not tomorrow. May the Lord help us.